0: So I'm handing out these snacks for my purse, like little Reese's and stuff. And one of my coworkers turns to me and she says, well, what are you going to pull out of your purse next? Some fried chicken. Right. And so I was just like, what? And I'm like, who would think I would ever be able to be that savvy to sneak an entire bucket of fried chicken in my purse? Like, I'm I'm good at what I do. But like, come on, that's a bit much.
1: Oh, yeah, we are going to go there. That's my guest on this episode of The Mic Drop Moment, delivering the first of many mic drop moments that happen during the course of our conversation. I love this one, and I can't wait for you to dive in. We talk about so much on this. We take on leadership. We talk about the state of diversity and inclusivity. We talk about the danger in our assumptions where satire begins and ends and sometimes where it doesn't even start in the first place. I talk about my own coming out story and the narratives that impacted the way that I felt in the world. We also take on diet culture, fear-based narratives, imposter syndrome, and the issue of diversity in the speaking industry today. See, I told you, it's a big one. My guest today is Christina Blacken. She is the chief story strategist and founder of The TheNewQuo.com. It's a culture and communications consultancy group that helps leaders rebrand and rewrite their unique voice to navigate change and create status quo-breaking communications. She spent the last 10 years using story to drive action, everything from motivating 300,000 young people to volunteer on various social causes to closing $6.5 million in profits with teams she's worked on throughout the various industries. She's also taught 302 leaders in her own proprietary workshops on how to create culture change all through the power of story. You know it's someone I love, right? She's also a great performer. I love the way that she combines her high energy entertainment style of singing with actionable tips that leave people ready to go out and change the world. You can also check out some of her work at Elle, Cosmopolitan, Marie Claire, The Huffington Post, Mogul.com, Attention.com, and Thrive.com. And if you want to connect with Christina, you can head over to thenewquo.com. You can also find her on Instagram at Christina Blacken or check out her podcast, which is one of my new favorites called Sway Them in Color. So without further ado, let's roll those credits and get going
2: so you have a story to tell. And you wonder how to own the stage and give that killer speech that will captivate the masses. You don't just want to speak to them. You want to transform your audience. Welcome to the Mic Drop Moment. Bold conversations about public speaking, storytelling, and business that give you real-world valuable takeaways so you can craft a speech, a story, a business, and a life that the world can't stop talking about. It's time to find your mic drop moment. Here is your host, Mike Ganino. Yeah, I started
1: listening to uh, Sway Them in Color last week because I was getting ready for the interview. And I just, it's, I love the guests you've had on. It's like people that I've not, I've not heard. So, it's so common in this industry to hear from the same voices all the time. <laughs>
0: Oh, my God, yes. That was one reason why I started it because I was like, you know, there's so many interesting, incredible people who are not famous, who are not on stages, that have so many things to share and say, and they should have a platform because I think they're far more interesting most of the time. And so I just put out a referral and asked people to send really dope people of color to me being like, hey, you know, I want to talk about creative courage and leadership lessons from those acts of courage from people who you won't typically see or hear from. So the I even have an edited an episode today from a woman who's a shaman, which is pretty dope. That's <laughs> she cool. essentially like left a top 1% position at a $250 million company as a sales consultant to become a shaman. And she had this crazy sort of journey going back to South and West Africa to pursue it. And so our episode is like really deep and spiritual. And she talks about a lot of things she went through to get there. But I was like, yeah, you would never hear that on most podcasts or like most business or leadership podcasts so I'm excited and proud that it's like been going decently well so far because I have no idea what I'm doing but I'm like putting it out there
1: <laughs> I love it the uh in the intro to it you talk about uh getting people off the hamster wheel of sameness and <laughs> I, I love that why like i I think I get it. I get it obviously I'm in this perspective but what do you think is the issue because you're looking at it from a leadership perspective of like we have an issue with leadership if everybody is on this same wheel of the, the hamster wheel of sameness, right?
0: Yes. I mean, I love that phrase because I think it really summarizes a lot of the core of the work that I do, which is really how do we redefine the status quo and do that through storytelling and essentially getting people to think differently about a lot of topics that seem fairly conventional. And leadership to me is one of the most important ones because leadership approaches and ideologies affect everything that we do from the workplace to our, you know, communities and the policies and practitioners who are leading our communities. And I felt like every time I would, you know, go look up a leadership podcast or look at potential leadership conferences or things that were related to those topics, it was always the same few old white dudes who were talking. And not to say that they can't have great ideas and share their voices, but it just, kind of really leaves out so much from the conversation when we're consistently only listening to a small handful of perspectives. And I also think that the formalities and assumptions that we have around those topics come from that. And I think it can be a lot more fun and engaging and kind of wacky and out there and still give you something useful and interesting to learn about. So that was one reason why I was like, yeah, that's what this is about. Like let's get off the <laughs> hamster wheel of sameness. Let's stop talking about the same shit all the time and approaching it in the same ways and get people to feel engaged and excited about topics they don't they don't typically talk about.
1: Well and it's it's an interesting like What is that called—a silo or a vacuum? Because I think also you run into this thing where sometimes I run into people. The only examples we hear are someone who runs Apple, someone who ran Disney, someone who ran Walmart, someone who ran Southwest, and it's like I feel in some way it also abdicates responsibility and takes away responsibility from people to say like, well, no, I can lead really great at my small bakery. Like Mm -hmm. we think that the only way to do it is to do it in that one thing, and so it's it's. It takes away our ability to say, wait, do we all have to be Apple for what we do to be valuable? And I think that that's part of the, the wheel of sameness that's dangerous too, Is is this challenge of... There are other ways to do it than these five examples we all keep seeing
0: everywhere. Yes, exactly. I think I was actually having a conversation this last weekend at somebody's birthday who had gathered a group of women who are all really smart, entrepreneurial, doing their thing. And we got into a conversation around the problems with the VC world, which is exactly that. It's sort of like grow by any means necessary to your own mental health. And physical detriment to the detriment of the environment and the impacts you're having as a company. And your success is measured solely by can you grow, you know, grotesquely large as quickly as possible, regardless of the impacts. And I think there's so many issues that have come from that this idea of people have to all kind of follow a very specific linear path to success or else they're not seen as useful or should be paid attention to. And in fact, there are so many companies and even small businesses that have been around 30, 40 years, and they're making a couple million in revenue or whatever that number is. And no, they're not the billion-dollar apples of the world, but they still contribute significantly to their community, to bringing great products, to employing people. And I think overlooking all of that is super problematic in so many ways because growing just to grow – does not necessarily make good things or create environments or organizations that people actually want to work with or work for.
1: Yeah. And even organizations that, that can last the test of time.
0: Exactly. Cause like you can't grow, I, I call it like the, the King Kong effect essentially. Like, do you remember <laughs> um, the Nutty Professor? And there's a scene where Dr. Clump like grows to this grotesque sort of almost uh, gargantuan size and he's destroying the city.
1: Yeah, And yeah. I'm
0: like, this is literally how people think businesses should be, that they grow infinitely large, <laughs> no matter how crazy it is or how big it may seem. And it's just, you never stop growing. And I think with that sort of setup, you're always feeling empty and not like you're getting enough because the mm. goalpost is always moving. I've worked in companies where every quarter we would hit our goals and they were aggressive. like out of the out of reach goals and we would somehow miraculously hit them and we didn't even have time to celebrate and acknowledge it because we we're already on to the next biggest goal. And it was just it just never felt like it was enough. And so that kind of treadmill mentality of measuring success and setting goals in that way, I think, is super detrimental and really empty. And I think it's caused a lot of people to really question the companies they're working for, the purpose of their careers and like what they're doing.
1: Yeah, it's so dangerous. It's it's such a Common thing too. I I have a client who was talking about uh, their sales team, and they set a sales goal for these folks, and they beat it. So then they changed the sales goal, and we're like, well, they could beat it, so we have to set it higher. And it's like, no, that's that's not, the, that's not the point. You you already set this in place. They did what you asked them to do. It doesn't mean you keep changing it all the time.
0: Exactly. Like, how are you supposed to stay motivated with that? And not to say that you can't have like big. Bold goals. But a lot of the time, I always question people and say, well, what's your why behind that goal? Mm. And if there isn't a stronger why behind it, it's not going to be enough to continuously drive to that and also to enjoy the journey because you spend much more time in the journey towards a goal than actually getting to it, right? Like, even if you're (laughs) like running a marathon, the finish line is one minute of your. Three to four hour run. And if you don't enjoy the three to four hours of getting to that end point, you'll always be miserable. And every goal that you set will never feel aligned or feel like it's worth pursuing. And so I talk about this a lot because I do um, consulting and workshops on culture and communication. And a big part of it is the narratives people are creating around what does it mean to be successful and how companies have to operate. And I think all these shoulds and have to's are completely arbitrary. Like who set those ideas? Who set those stories? And if you re-examine them, it can really help you to completely sort of reinvent culture and reinvent how people interact with one another. And I think that will solve a lot of the problems that we have in our modern workplace, which is people being extremely discontent and disengaged. Yeah, it's it's
1: one of those challenges you, you see even... And you can feel it, right? Like when you go into a business or you interact with them, you can feel that this is happening.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I've definitely... So an example of that is I was doing um, a talk this summer at an HR conference and there are people from all over the country who came to this conference to essentially learn how they they can build better companies and address sort of the issues of the modern workplace going into the future. And the talk that I did was on imposter syndrome because a lot of high achieving individuals actually suffer from really crippling self-doubt. And so I teach these narrative techniques to essentially overcome some of the limiting beliefs and stories that they may have. And I had people who came up to me after and they were like, you know, this is the first time in my entire career I've ever been given tools to think about this stuff or to overcome it. And I didn't realize how much it was impeding the goals I'm setting, the ways that I'm stepping up in my job or my position, the ways that I'm potentially interacting with other people. And I think so many organizations overlook how small ways of communicating actually affect how people feel on a day-to-day basis and if people feel you know like they like they don't deserve what they've created that they're not worthy of being in certain positions or having certain titles that they can't be them f- their full authentic selves you're going to have a culture that completely fails and organizations that fail and we we're seeing that spectacularly happen right now in the news with all these companies sort of imploding in terms of their culture and in terms of you know look at we work look at What just happened with Away? I don't know if you saw the article that came out about Away, but they're sort of like this darling in the startup world. Uh, You know, they have a suitcase uh, product and they essentially sort of were reinventing travel and had huge marketing campaigns. And the CEO is a swimmer who essentially had some kind of toxic approaches to how she built culture in terms of saying that it was about radical feedback and building things as quickly as possible, when really she was emotionally abusing her employees. It was very clear after reading the interview that had like 14 employees that they had interviewed about their experience there. And I remember the article got posted into an entrepreneurship group that I'm in. And there there was kind of like a split conversation around the article. There were some people who were like, this is trash. This is exactly what's wrong with the VC world. We need to fix this shit. There were other people who were like, well, that's just how the startup world is. And when you're building something, you've got to work long hours and people should just expect that they have to kind of put their nose to the grindstone. And I'm like, no, just because it's been that way doesn't mean it's right. And it doesn't mean that it's the best way to build a company. Like, yes, you might work long hours and work hard. There's something wrong with that. But if people literally feel like they can't be themselves, that they're being emotionally abused, that they're being humiliated in front of their colleagues, that people of color who wanted safe spaces were being told they're racist because they sought out safe spaces to talk to each other about the microaggressions they're experiencing, like... That's not crazy to want to fix those things. And you don't have to create those things just to make a business or to grow or be successful. And I think because I think actually in the next five years, it's going to be like 50% of the U.S. is going to have a workforce that's pretty much freelance based or has some level of freelance work. 50% of the entire workforce, which is insane. It That's never been you know, a a common thing in the last even like 50 years. And I think it's because people are sick of these traditional ideologies around how you should be at work and how work should be. And people are sort of creating their own paths and and making unconventional approaches to it, which is also what motivated me to be an entrepreneur and to build my own company, because i worked in four industries, I saw how toxic and messed up it can be, especially as a woman of color. And I'm like, we could do better than this.
1: (laughs) And so what was the moment for you? So with the, um, the new quo, that's your culture communications consultancy. And I love, I love that the goal here is to how to use narrative for overcoming bias and creating behavior change try in, inside of organizations. What was the, I always call it the WTF moment where you look around and you say, why hasn't, why is nobody doing this? Whenever we start a new business, I always find that the WTF moment is usually where there's some good stuff. What was it for you that said, Nope, I, I'm done with this. I need to go change some things.
0: Yeah, I could have a couple of key moments, I think, across my career. But one that was the most recent that sort of really catapulted me out onto my own thing was I was working at a really large media company. And this is a company that would reach like 220 million readers a month with lots of different types of topics from sports to gaming to black news to women's health. And during that time, they were being sued by a celebrity for an article that they had released. And people didn't know what the future of the company was. We are like, it could be shut tomorrow. We don't know if there's going to be money in the coffers. Like, who knows what's going to happen? And during that entire time, the founder was really strategic and smart with using the origin story of the company as a way to get people to still feel confidence and and get them to stick around through the uncertainty. And he would talk about the fact that 20 years prior, when he was a journalist, he had noticed that there was a story that his colleagues would publish publicly especially around people of power and then a story that they would actually produce privately that was the full narrative that they would share with like colleagues over a drink and he was concerned about this gap between the full truth and what people saw in the public and so he was like I want to create a platform where people can kind of showcase the stories that people are scared of creating and sharing, especially around people in politics, people in media, people who have positions of influence and power. And sometimes they created amazing stuff and really kind of called out, called in people that needed to be <laughs> have that happen. And then they, they made big mistakes. And some of those mistakes led to the lawsuits that they had and the demise that essentially happened. Uh, but it was fascinating to me to see how much Human being strategic with the with the purpose and the mission of the company and leveraging that story and how much it actually impacted the culture it really helped people to weather the storm there were people who stuck around who in any other company probably would have jumped ship and they had been there 10 5 13 years. And as soon as leadership changed, so he ended up leading the company and new leadership came in, the culture completely eroded because they stopped telling those narratives and stories around what is the why behind this company? Yes, we want to make money. That's a given. But why are we doing it in the ways that we're doing it? We could choose any particular way to make a profit. Why are we choosing these ways? And why are we creating the stories? Why are we expanding our editorial, you know, point of view, like what is the purpose of this? And as soon as leaders stopped having those conversations and sharing those narratives, the culture completely eroded. I mean, the the retention went down probably 50% at least wow. like, there was even the department that I was in is almost completely liquidated now because everybody left. And I think it's fascinating to me when I saw that kind of experience and saw how much the connection between purpose and values within a company and how they're being leveraged or communicated really affects the culture and ultimately how people interact with one another. And so as I had seen that as somebody who's worked in communications for the last 10 years, and I've seen typically how narrative is used is, is for manipulation, right? It's to sell more products. It's to you know leverage people's insecurities and force them to like, consume stuff. And for me, I was like, well, how do we use this tool And get people to change their behavior, get them to change how they communicate, how they think about their values and purpose of the things they're making and creating, and the narratives they're using to essentially inform and educate and influence people around them. And how can we teach people to think a bit deeper about their own work and how they communicate about it? Because ultimately, most, if not all of the culture challenges you see in companies come down to communicate a communication issue. And usually the communication issue is people are communicating really inauthentically with no emotion, with no purpose, with no vision. And people are like, why the hell are we here? Why are we doing this? You know? So that kind of, it came from seeing how powerful narrative really was. And I saw how quickly culture shifted because of it. And also just knowing that we could do better and have more thriving, interesting cultures within companies that didn't have to necessarily, you know, throw out the entire um, organization to fix it. I think there's small communication things that anyone can do of any organizational size and create a culture that's much more integrated, that's much more free of bias, and that essentially people enjoy and actually want to be part of.
1: And what is it that stops, why do you think people stop doing that? Because it's it's one of those things right? you think about it and you're like, it makes so much sense, but it's pretty easy to fall out of the practice of using narrative in this way. So, what have you found is like, what happens that it stops being relevant? Is that the pressure from outside?
0: I think it's fair based thinking. And one thing that I teach, I have this workshop on culture and essentially cutting the panic when your culture changes, and how you can think a bit about how you switch from a culture of autopilot to a culture of curiosity. And the autopilot culture is very common because it's done unintentionally and mindlessly. And essentially, is anytime there's a trigger or some sort of change, which is almost every single day, there's changes happening around all of us at all times. How you interpret and attach story to that change is essentially what affects your behavior. And most people attach fear-based narratives to a change. They're like, "Uh uh-oh, this means this could fail, this could not work, we may not make a profit, there's all this what-ifs and worst-case scenario thinking. And we're wired to be that way because it feels like we can protect ourselves when we have worst-case scenario thinking. But in fact, you essentially cut off all the opportunity to be curious, to be innovative or creative if you only revere your fear. So fear is, it's a, it's a very important emotion. I think we need it. But when you only respect and listen to that, then the communication style completely changes. And so that's how you get breakdowns in um, culture when it comes to assumptions being made by people, microaggressions that occur, distress that happens. It starts from a kind of top down process of being fear-based and anxiety-driven when you're communicating and making decisions as a leader. And it's it takes really significant practice, I think, to continuously question the assumptions that you're making around a particular change. I think change is really scary for most human beings because we want control and we always assume that change is bad and i think the more that individuals and especially leaders can understand that change is change is neutral until you attach a narrative to it um that you shouldn't automatically assume that every single change is going to come with like a detrimental negative result and so The more that leaders can do that, I think the better, and they will essentially be better communicators. They'll have time to be able to step back and think deeper and introspect and have self-awareness to attach meaning to a change, because that's a leader's primary job is to essentially communicate and distill meaning in some sort of way outside of process and policy. They're the ones who are kind of setting the vision and saying, here's what this change means. Here's why we're doing this thing. Here's why it matters. Here's why it's happening. And you can't really do that if you're like fear-based. You're just like, okay, you guys, this is really (laughs) bad. And uh, we're going to tank it a month if we don't do X, Y, and Z. If we don't make $50 by Q4, you're all fine. You know, whatever fear-based thing. And I think that there's this sort of – and I I talk about this too in my workshop where I essentially say that there's this growing need for meaning. And people Mm -hmm. are seeking it out more than than ever before because we're kind of in this really interesting transitional time where people are not necessarily getting their meaning from the traditional places like church or other organizations because that's sort of declining in terms of people's participation. And so people are seeking more and more of like, why am I in this career? What does this job matter? Like, what is the purpose and impact of it? And you don't have to be in a nonprofit space to still want those things and to still want a deeper meaning to your day-to-day actions and to your life. And meaning can be as simple as, why it's important, the impact it has, the problem you're solving. It doesn't have to be super esoteric or even deeply spiritual to still have some sort of meaning attached. And that growing need means that leaders have to think at a deeper level with how they communicate and not just be emotionless robots who use fear-based tactics to drive behavior, to influence people. And narrative is a huge part of that. And interestingly enough, we are always using narrative even – subconsciously, I think it's like 65% of all daily communication is story. So we're doing it without thinking about it. But if you don't, if you're not intentional and focused with the way that you communicate, who knows what kind of narratives you're sharing and and how some of them may be detrimental or negative or biased or full of nonsense, you know? So I think the mindfulness part of it is a huge part of the equation that I think more and more people need to consider.
1: The idea that, that, People have these fear-based narratives to change because I think we tend to look at it and we think, oh, change is happening and there is a narrative and that narrative is just the truth. And I I always make this comment of like, there can be lots of things that are true, but there's usually only one truth and that's typically what matters to that person. But this idea of fear-based narratives to change, one of the things that you and I have talked about uh, online and in person is some of the thing that's happening in the industry. So for, for speaking industry, for events, for things like that, there's, there's a, I don't know that I would say a huge movement, but there is some, some interest being paid to having events that have more female keynote speakers or all female keynote speakers. And it's a really interesting thing because even from places where you think someone would be really understanding or thoughtful, the first reaction sometimes is this fear-based narrative of, well, if they're filling the stage with women, it means that they're, being, uh, they're keeping everyone else out. And I just mm-hmm. think it's such an interesting response to there is a change going on in the world. There is some correction that needs to happen. But we write this narrative that it's really bad for me all the time.
0: Yes, absolutely. And it's kind of the zero-sum game that I think if you have a narrative or a belief that someone else benefiting means that you suffer, it becomes very hard to do anything around equality. I think there was um, some interesting research that was brought out around why certain individuals are really resistant to equality when it comes to race or when it comes to gender or sexuality. And when they broke down people's fears, it really came down to the fact that if this, if this group has benefits or is uplifted, that means that I will be pushed down or, Suffer or lose something. And that's not necessarily true. And in fact, ironically, people don't understand that the system that we have in place, everyone ultimately loses at some point because we're not essentially creating at the levels that we could, we're not innovating in the levels that we could. And there's a lot of distrust. And ultimately, with distrust comes a lot of breakdowns and suffering, because people can't rely on each other. And human beings are social creatures that have to depend on each other and ultimately impact one another. And so this idea of it's a zero-sum game, or if you gain some, I'm going to lose something, is really limited-based stories. But people genuinely deeply believe that. And I think a lot of men especially especially white men in these conversations have been really threatened because they're like well that means that I'm not going to have a space or a place it's like you've had so many spaces <laughs> and places for so long yeah. but you could not have it for one event for one second when the society has been built to tailor to you and to uplift you and to move you forward and to essentially uphold and present your point of view it's kind of crazy if you think about it. it's like even the idea of I remember um I used to get into this argument in college all the time. I went to Cornell University and Cornell has these sort of ethnicity dorms that celebrate different sorts of cultures. And they had a dorm called Ujima, which I think is still around, but it's a dorm to essentially celebrate the Black diaspora and to teach other Black students about aspects of African, Caribbean, and and Black culture in general that they may not have been exposed to before. So it's not about excluding white people. It's just, let's create a space we can actually celebrate these narratives and these experiences that are never celebrated And I remember I would tell people on campus, like my white colleagues and other students where I was living, and they'd be like, well, what if we had dorms that were only for white people and it was only focused on white culture? I'm like, you already do. I mean, this is the the entire campus was an all-white campus for decades. Like, what are you talking about? Like, you already have that. So I'm like, that's the point. You don't understand that. Because most people understand and believe that certain cultures are the default for everyone and they don't understand and realize that those cultures are actually exclusive and insular, then for them, it's an eye-opening moment for them to be like, oh, wait, I've had lots of space. I've taken up lots of space for a very long time and someone else getting a chance doesn't mean that I can't, I'll never get space again or that I've never been able to have my voice heard. That's the absolute opposite.
1: And it's such a challenge to think that that, our it, it goes it also goes back to this idea of of intersectionality you talk about this in your keynote uh being from utah and, and what that taught you and there's this idea of like well i have this one specific experience and so everyone must be having this one specific experience too and the reality is there's so many so many shades to that and it's so easy for people to get stuck in that. And I do think it goes back to this fear-based narrative that you were talking about with I don't, you know, if, if they're if we're carving out an event and all the keynote speakers are going to be women, then that means I can't speak there. And it's again, like you said, well, there's a million other events for a very long time where every single person has been a white male over the age of 45. And so there's this pendulum swing that has to happen. And so in the work that you do, how do you bring in this idea of intersectionality? Because I think for a lot of people, it's different. I mean, even even for me, I'll look at it sometimes and say, okay, well, I'm a, I'm a gay white man, so I must have the same experience as other gay white men. But it's like, actually, no, there's all of these other pieces that if you slice me, I'm I'm quite different. How have you found and how have you been able to incorporate that into the work you do in your workshops and speaking? Because it feels like a fundamental piece of understanding what's going on.
0: Absolutely, yeah. That's a really great question because I also do workshops on unconscious bias because bias is really tied to storytelling. As bias is based in narrative and based in assumptions that we make about people who are not like ourselves. And one of the things that I teach is to essentially help people to unpack their assumptions. There's questions that they can ask themselves when it comes to the the things that they're believing around, groups that are not like them, and also about their own abilities. And questions are really powerful because it forces you to self-examine and have this introspective process of being able to impact your own stuff. Because if you think about it, most people in life spend very little to no time being introspective, being reflective, doing deeper work on their own sort of behaviors and the drivers of their behaviors. And that's kind of terrifying when you think about it, especially if a majority of people who are going into leadership are required to have a deeper self-awareness so that they know why they're doing what they're doing and ultimately how they can align people correctly to opportunities and developing their skills. And so I ask people to go through sort of these reflective writing exercises. A lot of my workshop uses the power of expressive writing to essentially help people to unpack some of their assumptions and their behaviors and ultimately to understand and hear each other's narratives. So one thing that I do is called a diversity story circle where people in a team or in a group who are doing sort of a diversity training each get to share a story around how their identity has actually been part of them being treated differently or feeling excluded in some way. And identity could be race, gender, class, ethnicity, the able-bodied, not able-bodied, sexuality, religion, all these things. And it's fascinating because every single person, even if they seem on the outside the most privileged person potentially in the room, has some sort of story that is unexamined or untold around being treated differently because of who they are, whether it was a class thing, whether it was a values-based thing. And I think that's really powerful when people hear those narratives because they can understand that the human experience is so complex, and we have, we all have levels of privilege. We all have levels of oppression that we've gone through. And being able to hold those truths at the same time is really difficult for people until they can attach a story to it, because stories are actually wired for our brain so that we can remember things faster, make quicker decisions, and ultimately assume certain values or uh, meanings behind things. And so when you hear someone's personal story, it kind of makes you sit back and think, wow, this person has multiple aspects of their identity that I didn't even know was possible. Like examples, I did a this sort of experience with the nonprofit board a couple of weeks ago. And most of the people on the board are white. They're white men, and there's like a mix of a couple of people of color and and there are women. That's maybe like 50-50 when it comes to women and men. And there are a couple of people in the group who at first had a hard time trying to figure out, like, well, how is my identity ever? really made me feel excluded. But every single one of them could find an experience in time that you could never know about them just by looking at them. There was one individual who he passes as white, but he was actually, he's Arabic and speaks Arabic and, you know, has cultural um, understandings because of it. And he was out in public after 9-11 and was speaking in Arabic and a group heard him and essentially he got into an altercation with this group and they beat him up so bad that he was sent to the hospital. And he was like, up to that moment, I never felt like there was anything about my identity that would ever be used in that sort of way. Because when people see me, they assume I'm a, I'm a white man. And so I've had certain privileges because of that. But at the same time, because of my my religion and my culture and my language, it's come out in certain ways unexpectedly that have been really eye-opening. And there's another individual in that group who is a very wealthy individual who works in real estate. And he was like, you know, the one time that I actually experienced this was when I was going into these real estate circles with very fu- powerful people, and understanding my values were very different from theirs in terms of the impacts that I wanted to have and the things I would and would not do. And I was actually ostracized and kept out of groups because people felt like I was too much of a bleeding heart or didn't wasn't on board for making profit by any means necessary. And so he had a really difficult time in his career at first because of his values. And so it was interesting just hearing all these different stories and perspectives of every person's intersectionality is really disclosed and examined when we kind of ask ourselves the right questions and we're willing to go there and to see people's full experiences past the surface.
1: Yeah, it feels like there's some... It feels like there should be some responsibility for each of us to kind of say, "Wait a second, let me let me just question this more often," because it's really easy to look at to look at other people and say, "I think I get everything about you," uh, even people that look like you. It's easy to look and say, "Oh, you must be all these same things," and yet there's probably this whole other world that's much more interesting underneath.
0: Yeah, it's so easy to not assume things like that's the number one thing I teach people stop making assumptions and broad generalizations because you'd be surprised the amount of generalizations and narratives people hold about groups. All women do this. All men are that. All Asian people are this. All black people do that. It's like if you operate that way in terms of your thinking, the way that you interact and communicate with people is going to have those same sorts of, you know, indications and people will think you're you're crazy and like not want to work with you. And it's because a lot of the time we're not taught to even question those things. You just see them as absolute truths about the world when in fact those stereotypes and assumptions it makes it quick and easy for you to navigate but it doesn't allow you the beauty of seeing the complexity of of the real experiences of people. And so I teach people to stop making assumptions and to ask open-ended questions because when you ask questions you allow the people on the other end to be the experts of their experience and you get to learn things about them without being an asshole or making these broad generalizations about them and so I think people need to be taught how to ask better questions of each other because Mm -hmm. it allows you to have better conversations and um, communication with one another and also to just not make huge assumptions and sometimes it's hard because we make you know Impressions in the first thirty seconds of meeting somebody, but you'd be surprised. I and I especially notice it with certain generations. I think older generations they've lived in a specific sort of world with a specific sort of point of view, with a lot of rigidity when it comes to traditional roles of how people should be and how the world should operate. And I think it's it's changing, and and older generations are becoming more and more open to it. But being able to question those assumptions is super powerful because it allows you to build genuine trust and connections with people instead of putting them into these labels and boxes. Like I've, I had an experience. I think I've probably talked about this on other podcasts when I was working at that same media company I mentioned earlier, I went out with my coworkers one evening and we went to the movies and I brought snacks in my purse. Cause I'm a frugal woman and like, you know, <laughs> movies in New York city are damn expensive. So I'm handing out these snacks for my purse, like little Reese's and stuff. And one of my coworkers turns to me and she says, "Oh, well, what are you going to pull out of your purse next? Some fried chicken. Oh, my gosh. Right. And so I was just like, what? And I'm like, who would think I would ever be able to be that savvy to sneak an entire bucket of fried chicken in my purse? <laughs> like, I'm I'm good at what I do, but like, come on, that's a bit much. It's
1: next level chicken, that's next chicken level. Uh, sneaking.
0: Right. And I was also, you know, why couldn't you just say, I'm wondering what you're going to pull out next? Like, why are you assuming it's fried chicken? Fried chicken is a universally delicious food. Yes, there's stereotypes that black people love it, but like every person loves fried chicken. Honestly, if they're going to be really real about it, there's very few people who don't like fried chicken. So it was just fascinating to me that that kind of mental jump happens more often than you would think. And this is an individual who is LGBTQ, who is super progressive and woke, and reads all the things. And you could still make missteps with making silly assumptions about people. So. That's one of the most powerful things any leader can do is to stop making assumptions and asking better questions.
1: Yeah, it's this and we do, I find so many people give themselves uh give themselves permission to do things that really aren't okay simply because they say, "Well, I'm this or that." For example, I try to be very thoughtful as a, you know, I get access as a gay man. I get access to my girlfriends, I get access to say things that that other people couldn't say, and I'm very thoughtful about about where am I overstepping? And just because someone will laugh at something, or just because it feels like, oh, well, I'm gay, I can't possibly be oppressing you because I've been oppressed too. <laughs> right? It's so untrue. I mean, it's. Uh, have you watched the TV show Pose?
0: Uh, yeah, I have.
1: Yeah, so great. And I just think it's such a great example when when Blanca is thrown out. It's the '80s. It's it's happening in the 1980s, and there are these uh, trans trans women who are uh doing shows and doing what in the 80s you had to do to get by and she just wants to go into this bar and so she goes to the gay bar but the gay bar is full of gay white dudes who are wearing their like you know their vests which today would be from like patagonia or uniqlo or something they're wearing their vests and their button up and they like throw her out and it's it's so interesting to think of how people fight to get to the position where they're accepted and then very quickly we'll step on the people who who uh don't have that same privilege.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And this idea of like you being sort of like protected from ever making a mistake because <laughs> you have some sort of minority identity is so silly to me. And a lot of people do it. I've you know heard people say, "Oh, there's just um I I'm, I'm a big fan of the Real Housewives, which is yes. hilarious. So huge fan of it. I love watching the shows. And they have one franchise in Dallas where there's a woman on the show. I don't know if you're familiar with the characters, but Leanne is a okay. character on the show. And she was having an altercation with one of the other cast members who is essentially a Mexican woman. And so while she was upset and they were filming them in this hotel, she kept being like, oh, you're so strong and Mexican. Why don't you, you know, just saying things about her being a Mexican that looked, it was really questionable. Like I was, Like people were just sort of... Essentially being like, what are you saying? It sounds racist. It sounds like you're trying to use her identity. It's she's less than because she's Mexican in her comments. right? And her response at first publicly was like, I've slept with Spanish people before and oh I've got gosh. Mexican friends. Well, I would never be racist. So it's like, do you know that slave owners slept with slaves? Okay. That doesn't just because you slept with some one of the groups that are being oppressed doesn't mean that you're automatically like negated from ever doing anything oppressive or questionable or problematic. Like it's crazy to me that people use that as their like get out of jail free card. And well if
1: you apply that same thing, if you apply that same thing to to men who might be misogynistic and be like, well, uh, men forever have been sleeping with women. So how could they possibly look down on them? And
0: it's like, no, that's there's exactly. it's much more
1: complicated than
0: that. <laughs> exactly. And I think it's just because we have to let the ego go. You have to be willing to be wrong. And you have to be willing to generally say, I messed up, I made a mistake, I will do better, that's it. Not excusing it away or adding all these other elements. And that's really hard to do. Most human beings, most adults don't want to be publicly shamed or be seen as wrong, especially if you're in a position of any kind of influence or leadership. And that's the worst thing you can do as a leader is constantly always assume that you're right. And when people say, hey, you are wrong, you dig your heels in and say, no on the ledge of of absurdity and being like, I'm right, because I've refused to to be seen as a fool. And you look more like a fool when you can't just admit the things that you messed up on and how you generally are going to learn and change and be better. And I do think call out culture, there's problems with it in terms of just, you know, not getting the full story and not having nuanced conversation not allowing people to learn. But at the same time, I do appreciate the fact that social media has given us a way to hold people accountable who never had to give a damn before, who never had to be accountable, who've done problematic, jacked up things for decades. And they're now being called out because there's receipts. And there are people who are like, (laughs) I'm not going to stand for this. I'm going to publicly put it out there. And so even though people are like, oh, it's such a PC culture and I don't want to be part of this. I'm like, no, no one ever enjoyed you saying you're racist, misogynistic, homophobic, sex, whatever stuff for the last decade. You just didn't have anybody who could hold you accountable. People never liked it. It's not like it was just magically okay and everyone thought it was kumbaya. They hated that shit back then. They hate it now. You just get called out. There's consequences now.
1: Well, and we think that, oh, because because somebody – even – this happens a lot with, with uh, when I'm working with people on a speech and they want to say something funny or they think they're saying something funny. Like people laugh at it and it's like people nervously laugh at lots of things, but it doesn't mean they loved it and felt embraced by it. Like those are not the same – those are not exclusive, just the same way that like an employee – like, well, they didn't speak up and say something. Well, that's a – There's some power dynamics going on that might be the reason somebody didn't say something about some horrible thing that's happening to them.
0: Yes, exactly. I actually have a really good example of that because a couple of years ago at the same media company I was working at, we were working on a potential event idea for the inauguration when Trump was coming in office. And one of the publications that I worked with was a satire site. And they came up with this idea. They're like, okay, we'll do an event where we're literally throwing the constitution out the window because that's what represents like Trump's platform. Like he doesn't care about the constitution. There's no respect for it. So their idea was sort of to like represent that in this event by having these kind of kitschy, joke-like things that to them they thought were hilarious. But to me, I was like, oh, this is a red flag and it's going to blow up in our faces if we don't say something. So like one of their ideas was when you enter the event, you would have people in dystopian jumpsuits with their religion printed on it. And they'd be handing out drinks to people and they would have a drink called the Blood of the Working Class. that was like a Bloody Mary style drink that essentially was like, you know, named literally the Blood of the Working Class. And then you could go up to the wall and, like, write your last First Amendment rights on the wall. So, like, these very extreme things around the Constitution not being around. And I kept thinking, you know that this is a live reality for some people. Like, there was a list at that time that was being put together of certain people of certain religious groups so they could be watched and potentially seen as quote-unquote terrorists. There are individuals who did not have First Amendment rights based on what, like – Uh, you know minority statuses they have and so I flagged the the idea and I was like you know this is not satire it's too close to reality for certain groups and maybe you will never experience this and that's why it's funny but if we are this tone deaf and we put this out there people are going to be angry and I had to really fight to get people to understand that because they're like no it's jokes and do you know what satire is and I'm like yes I know what satire is and this is not it like if we're going to do this, it's a bad idea. And it took a lot because I was not at the top of the totem pole at that time to be able to speak up and say, let's not do this. But luckily we did table the idea because they wanted to pitch it out for sponsorship, which was even worse, like trying to get brands to sort of co-sign on this this concept. And it was wild to me that people didn't really want to admit that they just had big blind spots, even though they're a satire site and they talk about progressive issues and try to make funny jokes about racism and sexism. There were still these huge blind spots where people were completely missing how their jokes weren't actually funny and, in fact, were super insensitive to certain groups. And I think that happens way more often than people realize, especially if you've been in a position of power and leadership and sort of insulated from working with people who are not like you or having to be accountable for the things you say and do. More and more people are realizing that that can't, it's not going to exist much further into the modern workplace because people aren't going to put up with that shit anymore they're like i'm not gonna put up with my boss saying ridiculous things and making me feel bad about my identity or who i am at my expense so they can have a punchline it's like get get a better sense of humor because i just can't it's not gonna continue on and people are not gonna accept it
1: <laughs> it's the idea of like i'm not i'm not sensitive you're just not funny
0: exactly that's a good you should get a t-shirt i'm not sensitive you're just not funny it's cause... just like oh my god and, and the
1: the it really i mean it really does highlight the the like name of your company the the new quo it's like no there things have changed and yes it worked and it doesn't work anymore or maybe it never worked just there wasn't a way to hold anybody accountable and there's this shift that people it goes back to what you said earlier they're creating a fear-based narrative to this change
0: absolutely. And I think once you attach that to it, it, it I think the fear actually helps people to not have to be accountable for being part of the change or implementing the change because if you immediately assume that oh this change is bad, then you don't have to do anything, right? If you have to you don't have to adapt to anything, you don't have to make yourself uncomfortable or step out of your comfort zone. And I think the more that people sort of dig their heels in, and only want conformity, the more that they'll ultimately be there, be at their own demise, because change is inevitable. I think we're changing it every minute of every day and not being able to navigate that gracefully or successfully means you're going to potentially fail as a leader or as a entrepreneur or business owner, even as a human, right? Like we can't be so resistant to change. And I think that's, what's really interesting, even in like the political atmosphere we're in or, the debates and arguments that people have around different policies is there's sort of these two different camps, like these two sorts of parts of thinking, which is people who really uphold and understand the power of tradition and routine and ritual and wanting things to stay the same because it's comforting and it feels like that's how it should be. And then there are people who are constantly on the, uh, the verge of ingenuity and innovation and growth and changing tradition and changing our understanding and. That can be scary because it's uncertain and it's different and it's not been done before. And finding a balance between the two is super important because, yes, we do need routine and stability to feel comfortable and feel safe, but at the same time, conformity can also be to our own detriment, to our development, to solving problems. And this idea that people need to conform to be seen as professional or smart or you know, that they should be listened to is really at the core of most social issues that we have, where they're like, you've got to be like this. You've got to operate this way, to speak a certain way, I have to look a certain way, or else we're not going to take you seriously or else you don't deserve, you know, whatever benefits we talk about people quote unquote earning or deserving. <laughs> and I I think that's why I'm driven to do the work that I do because the the narratives and stories that we have attached to all these things really deeply drive the behaviors that people have, and until we shift those stories, you can talk to people until they're blue in the face. They're not going to change your behavior. And I think being able to understand the power of that more and more will really help to solve some of the bigger issues that we're facing in our society. Because you know, even if you think about comedy or entertainment, a lot of what those those vehicles do is they teach these narratives. They teach narratives around women and men, and and what it means to be the sort of uh, you know character. And people adopt those things as truth over time. And it's kind of crazy and, and frightening, but it's also the reality of how human beings work and how their brains work. So the even though people are like, oh, everybody's being so sensitive, we're doing ourselves a disservice to not examine those things because we don't know what problems it could create in the future.
1: Well, and I think it's interesting to talk about the people that are saying everyone is being so sensitive are also being incredibly sensitive. <laughs> <laughs> like, you're sitting over here crying about somebody being too sensitive. Like, aren't you now being too sensitive? Right. <laughs> it's like, oh, my gosh, I don't get it. It's interesting. I was I posted something earlier this year around uh, coming out and was talking about my story and this and that. And somebody commented and said, and my story was not that, like, my my mom was positive, you know, about it and, and loving about it. I didn't have that story. And somebody commented and said, well, if my son came out to me, he would know I loved him. We talk about it and this and that. And I said, right, but it wasn't that my mom didn't love me. It's that I spent 19 years of my life watching television that said only only straight couples are good, that only straight couples have babies, that mm-hmm. only straight couples have normal relationships, like that that a boy is supposed to do something, that I'm supposed to have a Hot Wheels and the McDonald's toy, like because it's called a boy toy. And if I wanted the doll, it was a girl toy, like that's the kind of stuff I think people don't realize is that the media, the television, the everything we experience creates all these narratives for us. And even if we're in a loving environment, even if we're in a loving workplace where everything seems fine, we walk in with all these other stories.
0: We do. And it's so, I mean, it's incredible that you had, you know, support a supportive family unit for your coming out experience, but you're absolutely right that even if you could be in a loving environment, if you don't see yourself reflected in some positive way out in the world it becomes really hard (laughs) to feel confident and to feel loved and accepted and you know nourished by society and i think you know that's why people always talk about how important diversifying stories in the media and entertainment is because i remember growing up and you know being raised in utah i was like the only black kid in a lot of my classes i wasn't mormon i wasn't republican and so not being part of the in group I never really saw myself reflected in my teachers and leadership on TV and my mom and family took it upon themselves to put me and my sisters in these places where we could see people like ourselves and we could consume, you know, culture and media that was around positive black, you know, achievement. I had, my grandmother had this like book of black invention. It was like a huge encyclopedia. And I remember I would open it and be like, Oh, the first open heart surgery was done by a black individual. Oh, the, the stoplight was invented by a black person. Oh, the ironing board. It's like all these things were invented by, you know, black individuals at some point in time. And I remember reading those things being like, wow, it's so cool. And I was in like elementary school when I was reading that. And I think if I hadn't had certain books that celebrated black ingenuity and creativity, I probably wouldn't have felt as confident or as excited about my culture, my history, my group without that. And it's kind of crazy to me that people don't understand and see that because if you turn on the TV and you see only a certain kind of group or people 90% of the time, at some point in time, kids start making up their narratives around why that is. They're like, why don't I ever see people with big, natural hair on TV? Why don't I see people who aren't loving same-sex relationships? Why don't I see people who are not conventionally attractive all the time or uh, you know, that aren't super bone-thin and you know very svelte? Like, there's all these things. And I think that once we start realizing that that's just... We've created yeah. a narrative, but it doesn't mean it's the the truth or this absolute. We can start to kind of deprogram and unprogram all these negative narratives that people have attached to their own value as a person. And I actually, I was listening to this podcast of a friend a couple of days ago. They did this episode on diet culture and the woman that was on is a proponent of healthy bodies at every size. It's sort of this ideology around how you can still live a healthy and active life. And the ultimate goal isn't to get smaller. You could get smaller, maybe, while doing this, but it's really about taking your color of yourself mentally, physically, emotionally, and not necessarily striving for some unrealistic, un- really like, arbitrary ideal of what it means to be a healthy, fit person. And she is talking about how diet culture was constructed purposely kind of at the turn of the century to sell more products. It wasn't because it was really based in like research and health practices and making sure that people feel good and it's it's kind of wild that so many people especially women in particular are significantly impacted by diet culture I think everybody is but women to an extreme and how much brain power and energy women are spending on trying to conform themselves and like mold themselves into this thing to then be accepted to then have a fulfilled life and if all your brain power is used to constantly try to change who you are to fit this mold or this narrative who knows what you could have done instead if all that brain power was used for something else that was used for you to create something incredible or to, you know, make your own path. And I think more and more people are waking up to the fact that these ideals are arbitrary. They're not necessarily set in stone and you don't have to be a white heterosexual man to be a successful person, to be a lovable person, to be somebody that essentially is, is worthy of love attention affection time whatever that is and I think the more that we can really stop and examine and and unpack some of that and actually shift some of that the better that we'll all be off like regardless of whatever your background because even you know men a lot of the time don't fit that narrative right like you have to be a certain masculinity and you have to present yourself in certain ways and have a certain level of status and success and all of that and it's just not it's not really attainable for anyone and so I think but a lot of my work is really about that a sort of how do we continuously unpack and shift the stories that we're telling around groups and around people so that we can create a world that feels more realistic and really celebrates the quirky, interesting differences of people, because that's what makes life makes life interesting. And that's what really helps us to create things that are ingenuity and, and full of innovation.
1: So good so good it feels like that's also part of what it's interesting i was having this like thought when you were talking about this that that's kind of what you're doing with the new quo is one the it it has changed but also like we're responsible for changing it by rewriting these stories
0: yes Rewriting the narrative, rewriting the stories, because we have so much more power than we think we do with the stories that we listen to, that we believe in, the ones that we actually tell and share. I think about the fact that parents tell their kids stories, all types of stories, and kids adopt those as truth or not. And as a parent, it's your responsibility to understand which one of those narratives are potentially problematic or harmful or limiting to your children and not passing on narratives that could essentially create continue generational trauma generational cyclical issues like even that process is powerful because people pick up a lot of ideas and beliefs from their family unit for better or for worse and that could be around all types of things like how men should be how women should be how minorities are how they're not how people you know achieve success or not like there's so many things that people pick up and We all have a responsibility because we're continuously creating narratives and communications on a regular and daily basis. And the higher you are in terms of visibility, even the more responsibility you have because your narratives are broadcasted out to lots of people. So that's why I think when you have a platform, it's a responsibility to think about what you create and make as a storyteller, as somebody who shares specific narratives, whatever they are, because you are having impact whether you like it or not.
2: Don't miss a single mic drop. Subscribe to the Mic Drop Moment.
1: Whenever I get to talk to performers and speakers like you, I'm always interested in what are some of the influences? What are some of the things that influence your style of speaking? Uh, What goes into that? What's inspired you and where do you take creative inspiration from, Christina?
0: So I do you singing and uh, performing in my talks. They're typically an hour to two hours. And I started doing that in my talks because I'm like, I think things should be more entertaining and performative so that people feel engaged and excited. And, you know, when we talk about these deeper harder topics, it doesn't have to be so heavy and boring. And I think so many, you know, you go to conferences and the talks are so, so serious and people's eyes are glazing over And if you get up and you like start singing Beyoncé, they're like, "Huh? What?" (laughs) I actually did this. Um, so I, I did a talk the beginning of this month at a conference called Future Work Live, and it was just about the future of work and people having different conversations around how people in the HR space could better construct their organizations and the problems that they're facing. And my talk was about culture change and essentially how storytelling is imperative to distilling meaning and ultimately to navigating as your culture as it changes in your organization. And at one point I was kind of talking about how narrative works in the brain, the cognitive neuroscience behind it. And I brought up the Lion King, the live action film that was recently released with Beyonce and um, Childish Gambino and, you know, other characters. And I started seeing in the circle of life and people were like, oh, you know, they were like, what is happening? This is not the norm. This is not the norm. And I'm like, y'all remember that part of the movie? And. A couple of people came up to me after and they're like, you have a really good voice. Like, I, They're like, I was not expecting that at all. But it's memorable and people remember it and it just kind of mixes it up. So it's nice to be able to use elements of surprise, use unconventional metaphors. And I really love using music because I grew up with music. It's really like my first love when it comes to creating anything is the singing and performing and like kind of integrating all of those into something that's actionable that people can take away tactics and and frameworks for them, but also remember because there's things attached to it that can jog their memory and and kind of stay with them. That's what I love to do when it comes to public speaking and teaching and doing workshops. So I'm happy I've been able to integrate all those parts of my identity because for a long time, I felt like I couldn't and I was sort of compartmentalized in my work life. Like I would being choirs. And I was in a funk band when I first moved to New York city and I would get, you know, singing and performing as just like a hobby side thing. And I was like, well, maybe I can integrate more of this into my day to day, the work that I do and do it in a way that feels, you know, fun and not all crazy and out there. It's just like a fun, interesting way to kind of add a spin on whatever I'm talking about.
1: And it's, it's such a fun thing to experience because again it's another place you're so consistent Christina it's another place where you are setting the standard for a brand new quo
0: yeah and that's really why I started doing it I was like you know no one does this so I why don't I just start kind of constructing my talks in the way that yes I uses research and I teach proprietary frameworks and things that people can actionably take to address that particular issue or topic we're speaking about whether it's bias or culture change or imposter syndrome Um, But then being able to use elements of surprise to keep people's attention, and so that they'll remember it. And I think more and more speakers and performers could probably leverage different aspects of other types of creativity or performing to drive their points home to be able to stand out and to be different to be unique. And we don't have to approach, you know, public speaking with this very formulaic ideology. It's like, it's really up to personality. And who you are as an individual and what your strengths and talents are. And I think more people could probably tap into that when it comes to how they approach, how they present their ideas or, you know, do things on stage. Like I always tell crazy stories or crack jokes or do things that people just don't expect because I think it allows us to understand that play and humor and, and levity is still an important part of being able to talk about any topic and get people to remember it and be engaged with it.
1: Well, it's such a critical part of learning and remembering and even paying attention.
0: Yeah. And like we live in this, you know, microwave five second attention society right now. You can't not use those things. You should leverage what people are drawn to and what the brain is naturally drawn to and use it as a kind of a gateway drug, I would say, to get people to pay attention to these deeper, harder topics that they may not naturally have a, a draw to.
1: Yeah, if, if what you if what you're saying matters and is important and can change the world, then you owe it to the audience to figure out how to get them to pay attention to it. That's my friend Christina Blacken. You can check her out at... The new quote.com or Christina Blacken on Instagram. You can also check out her podcast, which is all about ending the hamster wheel of sameness. It's called Sway Them in Color. It's one of my new favorites. It's uh, it's it's a fun show. And if you like this show, I sure would love if you subscribed and left a review on iTunes. It's kind of like a currency for us podcast folks. So I'm always begging folks, if you love the show, leave a review. It means a lot to me. Anyway, have a great one. We'll see you on the next episode of The Mic Drop Moment.
2: This episode has ended, but your journey doesn't have to. Head on over to www.mikeganino.com. Access all the resources and links that Mike and his guests shared today. And keep on crafting your own story. That's www.mikeganino.com. Your audience is waiting. Isn't it time to find your hashtag MikeDropMoment?